Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to deep dive into the Intel XE-based GPUs. Intel's been ramping up their offerings in this lineup, and you're about to get the full scoop on where the Iris XE ranks. Then we're headed over to the camera corner where Wendy will discuss extension tubes and macro lighting. So sit back, relax, and plug in because Hardware Addict starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, a resident photographer extraordinaire, along with hardware enthusiast, and Michael, the software sage in hardware Padawan. Let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Michael, please tell me this week you got something for us. I man. got something. Yes, this week I did something that was so great. It was awful. I had router issues, and uh, it was just fun. Uh, yeah, yeah, man. For the longest time, for about three months. I don't know exactly how long it's been. It's been happening every week for the past, I don't know, three months or so. I've had stream issues where I would stream uh, something, anything, as whether it's a podcast or just gaming or whatever. And every single time, without fail, it would crash at two hours, four minutes, and four seconds. Now, specifically that every single time. I have no idea what's causing it exactly, but I now know it is my router because I did a stream test this uh, today just as a recording time that actually I finished 20 minutes before we started. And I, I found out it's just it's the router because it was working just fine when I directly connected to the modem. And once that happened, I expected it to crash because at this point it just happened every time, no matter other every other configuration I changed. But now that I'm not using the router. It was fine. So that's fine. But Wendy, you want to hear what happened, the, the true story, the rest yes, of the story? Yes, I need here? to know. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to give you the inside scoop here, Wendy. He's, whatever he says now is made up. So here is the rest of the story. Michael didn't come to me immediately when he was having these problems. He had mentioned them, but he never was like, hey, can you help me troubleshoot? He never came to you as the hardware addict and asked Wendy, hey, I'm having these issues. Can you troubleshoot with me? He went everywhere else, talked to everyone else but us. And then, guess what happened, Wendy? He comes to me. I give him one simple instruction of something to try. Now, he was going to deny that he was went along with it right away, but he was like, no, I don't think that. I was like, just try this. And he plugs it directly into his modem from the cable company, and he finds out where the actual break is. Why didn't he come to us first, Wendy? That's the question. I don't know. I just assume that everybody tries that first because that's the first thing I always try. So I knew that he was having this issue. I just assumed that he'd already tried. Why this. would you assume that the non-hardware guy knows hardware stuff? Come on, people. <laughs> and also, but you know, internet. You, you, yeah, yeah, sure. But you both knew that I had this issue and neither one of you came to me to help me fix it. Why is it no. up to me to go to you? I mean, it's it's a two-way street, people. Two-way street. A free, you're getting free <laughs> tech advice worth thousands. You at least have to make the effort to get that $1,000 worth of tech advice from Wendy or Okay. Me. I, I apologize for taking forever to ask the question. There but you go. I, it, I did get it fixed-ish. Not really. It's not actually fixed yet. 
I just now know that it is the router. So at some point going forward, I will fix figure out how to fix it or have Ryan and Wendy tell me what to do. Well, it's really interesting, the problem you're having, because all joking aside, it does have a very weird side effect. Because when I would when I was hearing about it, the first thing I thought is it's got to be one of the tools that you're using on top, like a restream or something, because it's exactly at two right. hours and such and such minutes. I don't remember what the exact one, two but hours, it's four at that minutes, exact four seconds. And that's such a weird attribute to happen on a hardware failure or even a software failure on a router that happens yeah. at that exact moment. So that, that, that would seriously throw most people off. I think. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a hardware thing. It seems more like a specific, it, it, like it made me think it was a parental control thing or something, but I checked the router. There's not, none of that stuff is set or anything. And then that's why I contacted restream to see if it was them. And they said, absolutely not contacted my ISP. And they said, absolutely not. And I still don't know exactly what's causing it, but you know, at least we're getting closer. And at least I could I streamed today and it didn't crash on me randomly. I actually had to click the stop button for the first time in like three months or so. That's gotta Whoa. feel good. It, it was interesting. It was it was so new to me. So new again. Yes, maybe sir. you'll get a new router and maybe you'll actually get it out of the box since it's something that you desperately need right away within a month or so of getting it. Well, there's uh, always making sure you're re doing a hard reset first, see if that fixes it, and then yeah. reinstalling the firmware. So I'd go do those routes before you get a new one, because good routers are expensive. Yeah, that's that's fair point. I might get a new one, and uh, before I do that, I will take Wendy's advice, and I will do the re hard reset and all that stuff, and then if I need to, I'll get a new router and leave it in the box for a minimum of two months just to spite Ryan. Well, see, I would re I would <laughs> replace that router even if it is something like a reset or a software. Even though Wendy's the right advice to be giving, to me, it's just the reckoning. It's in spite of that router, I would buy a new one. Well, it, it is also one. such a ridiculously weird specific problem to have. Like, if if it was a, like to me, if it was like a hardware issue, like it would overheating or something, that would be random times every time that but the fact that it's exactly the same every single time without fail it can't be just an overheating issue you only noticed it while you were streaming right it didn't happen when you're just surfing right. the internet to your knowledge at no other times that's why i thought it was my isp because i was like maybe they're limiting me and capping me or something and then maybe it's restreaming like the only they only let you go for a certain amount of time so it was it was because that specific time was set it was so weird because i've never seen any kind of like hardware failure that would do it so consistently and at this point I, I i think you're probably right i probably should just get a new one just because like it doesn't make any sense for this to even be a thing yet somehow it is yeah well wendy you've had some issues of your own it looks like what have you been up to in the hardware world yes i'm also having some issues and the first time this happened i thought it was a fluke but apparently not so with our current service provider and it's only been with our current mobile service provider. We'll get a security patch update. Nothing big, just a plain old small security patch to our phones. And then when we go up to the mountains to my in-laws, even though we're supposed to be on network, we're no longer on network, we're on roaming. And in order to get service there again, we have to completely reset the devices. The first time this happened, I went through all of the different paths and avenues to try and get it fixed before 
doing a reset of the device and nothing worked. So redoing the APN settings, reboot, didn't change it. All kinds of other stuff didn't work. There had to be a hard reset of it, completely wipe everything, start from scratch. And in the very beginning, when you first turn it on, it is using those, you're out of network settings. And then when you get a little bit into the reset up, then you're back on network again. I don't understand why we're having that issue, but it is definitely related to our service provider. We're paying them enough that we shouldn't be having those issues. So I'm now looking for a new off-contract service provider. Very interesting. Out of curiosity, did you try the update PRL when you would have this issue? No, I didn't. It would be interesting to see if that fixes it. Now, you mentioned that you're actually connecting to your service provider, but there's something called a preferred roaming list on phones and that carriers basically have a, let's just call it a file that has all the preferred roaming partners in it that your phone's going to tap into each time. And when you get an update, generally your phone should go with go through and update the PRL as well in case those change because a lot of carriers change who the roaming partners are from time to time. And that can cause certain issues. And the fact that you're resetting it and it's coming back makes me think that could be something to check uh, in your settings. Just click update PRL next time and see if it fixes anything. It might not. It probably won't. But I'd be curious if you do get a chance to try that to see if that works. If I'm still with this service provider, when we go up again after having a security patch update or whatever, I will definitely try that first because it is such a pain as you're meeting with family, have other stuff going on. Because when we went up this last weekend, there was an anniversary thing for some friends that we were doing. And then my husband had to fix some stuff. And so we needed to have our phones. We needed to have phone service. And then that's that much more time that you're spending not getting the other stuff done that we needed to because phones needed reset. Very, very frustrating experience when that type of stuff happens for sure. Yes, it is. But at least you've got to have something fun going on that isn't related to hardware issues or software issues, right? Well, good news is I don't keep hardware long enough for it ever to break. So (laughs) I have a brand new... Oh, man, we're all friends here. I can just be honest with you. When I get something that I'm not necessarily super proud of... Mm. You guys won't make fun of me, right? Uh, not not remotely no, at all. Sure, too much. We won't. Yeah, no. Yeah. I would never. I would never do that to you. At least not for the next three seconds. None of those responses seem genuine. I got a Chromebook. <laughs> Ew. I got a Chromebook. Ew. A Google. I'm not a Google. <laughs> so I, I don't. Here's the thing that happened. Okay, I had a moment. I got hit in the head with a rock, and I was like, apparently. Huh. No, the, the truth is that I wanted to complete my HP hardware discovery of fantastic hardware out there that HP is creating. And we've talked about the reasons why their lack of their awesome supply chain and the work that they've done to clean that up out of all of the hardware partners out there. And the Chromebook is something that if you go into a lot of your stores, your Best Buys and things, they're going to have a whole section there dedicated to them. And there's been a lot of work that Chrome OS has been doing, making the Linux installation easier. And I haven't had a chance to play with a Chromebook in a while. So I picked up an HP X360 Chromebook. This has an Intel Core i3 10th gen inside of it. 
nice metal alloy case, top firing speakers, fingerprint reader, really firm hinge that, of course, you can put into the A-frame style uh, like uh, other 360s there and draw on it and those type of things. Magnetic closing clasp. It has a really large touchpad, crisp, clear screen, lots of ports. I know this doesn't even sound like a Chromebook. And get this, it has a webcam kill switch and a Chromebook. Wait, what? I know. I figured if you're going to get a Chromebook, you're just accepting the fact you're being spied on by Google. But <laughs> apparently, HP is like, hey, we're going to try to help you out here with this. So it's a very nice Chromebook. It's the nicest Chromebook I've ever held in my hands. The fact that it wasn't plasticky, it wasn't cheap, it didn't have that kind of faded screen that a lot of the Chromebooks have. The keyboard, the keys on the keyboard are a little bit, you know, they're the chiclet really thin. So you feel like if you press too hard, you would break them. Although I type very hard and haven't broke one, but they're just, they don't feel super strong. So the keys aren't my favorite, but the keyboard frame itself is very solid and nice. And there, there are issues and there's some good things. I'm going to do a video on it if you want to check it out. But the thing I thought was most interesting about this is in Chrome OS, you used to have to kind of go into this developer mode, then reboot it, and it would give you this killer warning that your Chromebook's now unsafe, and then you would go and install Linux. Now, you go into settings, and you click enable Linux. Wait, what? And it's done. Heck yeah. yeah. That's it, which is really cool. And mm. the other thing, and I'll get into this in the video, is... I understand that a lot of people get a Chromebook to just surf the internet, but there's other people who get Chromebooks and they expect to be able to do all kinds of things with them, especially when you're dealing with a pretty decent processor, 10th Gen i3, you got eight gigs of RAM, all that type of stuff that you'd be able to do into touch screen that goes in A-frame, you'd be able to do some drawing and things, but the Chromebook app selection is horrific. And a lot of the Android apps literally show up as a little tiny screen like you're looking at a phone yeah. inside of Chrome OS. Yeah. But when you put Linux on it, it actually turns it into a usable machine. And so much so that I actually think that the Chromebook is only usable if you enable that Linux, <laughs> like usable for anybody who does anything outside of surfing the internet. And once you enable that, it becomes a fully capable machine of things like OBS and Krita and GIMP and all of these amazing tools that you can download for it from the Linux world. And that was really interesting revelation for me because I hadn't played with a Chromebook in a while and I kind of forgot how incapable they are until you get that Linux installed on them. But that was kind of cool in a way to see, although they should just enable it by default to make Chrome OS actually worth something. And I would expect them to have that kind of thing worked out by now because I do have the one Samsung tablet that has the attachable keyboard and you can put it in dex mode and it actually looks really good. So I'm surprised that Chrome hasn't got that figured out yet. Yeah, maybe they'll get there one day where they just enable it by default and let people have a really nice selection of apps. But I'll tell you this, they've certainly made it a thousand times easier and there's good reason why Google's investing in that because it's the only thing that really takes that Chromebook from just a browser to something really powerful. It is very solid, and I'm happy to see Linux kind of getting more of a front stage with the Chromebook. I couldn't imagine owning a Chromebook and not enabling Linux in it, because you'd just be missing out on so much. But huge props to HP for making a Chromebook, just from the hardware perspective, it's actually worthy of being held in someone's hands. That's not yeah, a piece nice. of throwaway tech for schools. Exactly. It's still a Google. 
This episode of Hard Radix is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service, or DBAAS, or DBAS. I mean, it's probably not DBAS, but I want it to be, so we're going to go with that. With managed MongoDB, you can focus more on building scalable, high-performance apps and less on maintaining the database. You simply offload your Mongo database administration to DigitalOcean and let them handle all the provisioning, managing, scaling, updates, backups, and security of your clusters. DigitalOcean built this service in partnership with MongoDB Inc., and together they have ensured that you will get access to all the latest releases of MongoDB document database as they become available. And as a listener of the Hardware Addicts podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN dash Mongo. Again, that's do.co slash DLN dash Mongo to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new managed Mongo database service. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. So this week, I wanted to dive into Intel's entry into GPUs. If you think back on previous episodes, we were all really excited about the news that Intel was going to go all in in the GPU world. We were going to see some discrete graphics here that were going to come out from them and give some competition, some much needed competition to both NVIDIA and AMD in this game. So when you think back on that excitement, is there anything Intel's released so far that kind of met those expectations in any of your minds? Uh, no, they've released something, but not anything I'm actually really excited about. I'm excited they finally released it. It's kind of hard to get excited about anything, frankly, in the GPU world because nobody can get any GPUs. So th again, the idea of Intel coming into here couldn't be better timing, but... There's really nothing in my mind either that's been earth shattering in Intel's release, but I think things are starting to heat up a little bit. We're starting to get some products out there in their new XE lineup, and I want to kind of uncover how they are naming their architectures and what we should be looking for, depending on what type of workloads and things that you do in this Intel world as they start ramping up their offerings. All right, that sounds good. And let me guess, they have the best naming scheme ever with, uh, let, let's see, at least a dozen letters interconnected with many symbols and numbers. That I, I, that, is that how they did it? <laughs> Thankfully, the same people that are naming their CPUs are not yet naming their GPUs, but I don't know that it's a fantastic naming. I'll leave that up to you as a marketer, Michael, to let me know if, you think their naming's good. So the first thing that we'll talk about is their XE architecture, also known as Generation 12. The Intel XE is the official name. When you see that XE, that's like the x86 is the main architecture for CPUs. That XE is the main architecture for Intel's GPUs. But within that XE architecture, they have a series of micro architectures. And these are the names that you kind of want to pay more attention to than just seeing the XE label. There's the XE LP, which the LP stands for low power. So I give them props that these random letters actually mean something here. So if you see XELP, that's for low power, integrated low power. If you see HPG, 
that's more of your enthusiast, high-performance gaming. That's what I would be looking for in a graphics card. I would want one that's an XEHPG. The XEHP is data center-based or for high-performance, and then HPC is high-performance computing by itself. So it's confusing, but at least the letters mean something after the XE. I guess. Sure. Let's go with at least it means something. <laughs> at least it means something, and if you know what it means, it's a little easier to differentiate between them. Well, I love the fact that that it's it's, it's trying to mean something, but they couldn't just say XE Gaming. They had to be X, XE HPG and also have two other ones that start with HP because it's not confusing enough that this is what I expected from Intel. The that it's not as bad as the 1060 or the 1035G70 whatever. It's not as bad as that, but it's still bad. <laughs> yeah, it it's not fantastic. They really it's better, so I guess it's it's a step above what we've seen for the way they name their CPUs, but it's definitely not going to drive excitement to tell your friends, like, I have an XBHPG. They'll be like, what? What is that? Is that like some knockoff <laughs> yeah, thing? Did, or you, did what you just have like about? an al a alphabet seizure or something? <laughs> From a consumer standpoint, Intel's GPU lineup today looks something like this. You have the Intel Iris X Max graphics. And this is what I don't like. The Max graphics is actually their discrete mobile GPU for laptops. The Max. Whereas the Intel Iris X is the discrete graphics card line for desktop PCs. So now we've got three different kind of things to keep in mind. You've got XE as your architecture. You have your micro architecture, the LP, HPG, HP, and HPC. And then, of course, you have this Iris X Max and this Iris X. To me, the Max should be their discrete graphics card lineup, not the one that they're putting inside of mobile GPUs because Max seems like that's going to be their highest power. performance. Yeah. Yeah. That's not. <laughs> that that's the. It's, it's not. The maximum power for mobile graphics. Like that's what. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the XE architecture includes things like. So when you see that XE architecture, the Intel Deep Learning Boost powered AI engine could do things like video editing, photo enhancing, style transfer, the green screen effects that you've seen low power architecture. So you've got that low power consumption and day zero drivers and adaptive sync for the ones that are on the market today, which is some nice additional options inside of XE. When it comes to taking these cards that we have today and comparing them to what AMD and NVIDIA have been offering, they're okay. Like they compete with the NVIDIA MX lineup most people probably aren't even familiar with the MX lineup, but some of the laptops have it. It's kind of the really low-end NVIDIA graphics inside of some laptops. They're not super powerful. They're not terrible either, but it's not what we were all hoping for if you go back into those previous episodes. Yeah, I thought they were going to be you know, trying to challenge for the big players of the, of the space. It doesn't seem like that's, that's what their goal is. At least not with the low-powered lineup. That's the one that you can get your hands on right now, and it's only available for pre-built systems. So if you want to get your hands on one, you actually have to buy a pre-built with it inside. Yeah, so you're specifically talking about getting your hands on like one of the Iris XE DG1 discrete graphics cards where I think they're only in like 
cyber power machines or one of those I buy powers or something like that machines? I believe it's cyber power that they're in. And really, these cards are meant for just the day-to-day. You can do a little bit of gaming on them, but they're mostly for running your monitors and consuming media. They're not a heavy hitter, but it is a good place to have a card like this inside the market where you have more flexibility, especially with ports. That's one of the things that I liked about it when I was doing some research. Yeah. So when we're talking about the XEDG1, there's a a Zeus, I think, has made one of the ones that some of the folks are out there benchmarking right now. It uses the 10 nanometer Superfin process. It's 900 megahertz with a boost up to 1650. The TDP on this is super low at 30 watts. No auxiliary power needed for it. So you know right there, you're not really going after the latest 3070, 3080 TIs or anything when you don't even have any auxiliary power needed to run these things. And passive cooling, so yeah. Exactly, yeah, it's got passive cooling. And we know the fan, the GPUs today are so huge, it's almost humorous. Uh, Michael, you love the one where he pulls it out of the oven. Was that the 3090, I think? Yeah, yes. that was out of the 3090. It was, that was a wonderful way to express how we don't know how to present this. <laughs> unless they were talking about, unless they were trying to imply that we just finished baking it, and then you're like, no, nah, still, no, nah, no, nah, still weird. Or they're implying <laughs> that this card gets really, really hot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's so hot, it just like it came out of the oven. The one, the one card you can get your hands on again if you buy one of these pre-built machines that Intel has released so far also requires a specific motherboard to run it. You can't just stick this into any motherboard out there and run this. So there's a lot of limitations to this. It almost felt like to me that Intel was like, look, nobody can get their hands on any GPUs right now. We have the ability to take our mobile max GPU, put it onto a discrete card and sell it to some people who want to get some machines out there until you can actually get a card that you would want. And or you're doing very low-end graphical work, video editing, and some low-end gaming or something with it. So, I mean, it can kind of fill that gap in between, I need to build a machine, and nobody has any GPUs in the market. Well, it's great for somebody who has multiple screens, and so they want to push to some nice multiple screens. But I wouldn't say that even if you're doing video editing, it would have to be really low. And I don't want to say low-end video editing, but something that's not very taxing. You're just doing a quick little, hey, I'm making a GIF here, doing some quick edits here. It's not something that is made for power, but it'll get the day-to-day stuff done, especially if you're doing different media consumption and that kind of thing. This is a great spot for this card especially if you are not doing any of the video editing or photo editing, but you need something that will put out to three monitors because this card will do three monitors at once and run fine. That's what it's made for. Yeah, what frustrates me is the naming convention again here. So I spent all this time researching and shared with all of you Intel XE, XE's the architecture, the LP, HPG, HP, HPC, and then they released their new card, and it's the Intel Iris XE DG1. Now, DG stands for Discrete Graphics 1, but why is there no designation for HP or HPC or LP 
made for these cards. Like you make these architectures and micro architectures and you spend all the time naming them and then don't use any of it in your actual. I don't think they spent any time naming them. (laughs) I think what they did is they, they got like a Scrabble set and then put some kind of sticky substance on a wall and threw it all at the wall and whatever stuck in a rough area of the same, like kind of like together. They were like, okay, that's, XE. Okay, close enough. We'll go with that. That's 40 points right there. And this things like that, that's what I expect them to be able to do this because it makes it just it just seems random at this point even though they say it makes sense why the DG1 means it's the first dra- discrete graphics card. Okay, sure. Why? But the other stuff doesn't make any sense. I think that Intel is just I really want to see a video from the Intel design team or marketing team for how they chose it because it would be the most pretentious gibberish video ever. And I think that the only tech company that hasn't put that out yet, uh, you know, Microsoft's done it. Apple's done it. Google's done it. Uh, and I think NVIDIA has done it too. Uh, maybe AMD hasn't. I don't know. But I want to see just if they can try to pretend that this makes sense. I would love to argue with you and say how wrong you are and try to defend Intel here, but they really need to do some work on marketing, which is surprising because Intel is the king of marketing Intel inside, one of the greatest marketing advertising ever in the CPU world. One of the best ever. Plus also the the slope, like the jingle, you know, dum, 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 dum. Like you hear that, so you know it's Intel. Like they, they, they... I think that their marketing team just just stopped being uh, being existing for like twenty years ago because in the nineties, yeah, there was you you didn't hear anything other than Intel stuff, and their marketing was so on point. And I don't I don't know if they even attempt anymore. And those of us who grew up at that time where you couldn't skip commercials and they were on everywhere, you have that jingle drilled into your head for the rest of your life. Right. They have the ability or they had the ability or they had a marketing team at some point that they hired that had the ability to market things correctly. I I just don't I don't like their naming scheme, but maybe now is not the right time to come out with something super exciting until you have that card that you feel is your flagship. But you should still stick to a standard that allows people to kind of understand what they're getting. Yes. My guess is this is definitely part of their low powered line, and it's probably one of those things that when you're looking at specs, whether it's on their website or somewhere there, you're buying it, you would see it as, okay, this is part of the XPLP line, but it would make more sense to not have that bogged down somewhere in the specs and have it part of the name if you're already using that in another form of naming structure. There were a couple mistakes I feel like they made using the LP DDR4X RAM here instead of something like GDDR5 RAM which is a mistake, but they did put in a dedicated encoder and decoder, which gives it an advantage over NVIDIA's low-end offerings. So there are some things you could do with this card. It's just you're going to be paying... Any games you're going to play would have to be on the absolute lowest settings, and then you're not going to be able to maintain great frame rates. And in a lot of the benchmarks, you can see that it can get up to 90 frames per second, but it goes as low as 20 which is literally unplayable in the same game. So it gives a range of like between 20 and 90 frames per second. Well, that's horrific because at the point you get to 20, you can't, it's not a playable game. 
Yeah, absolutely. If you're wanting to find a game that you can play on this card, check out Deal and Extend 63 because we talked about one that takes almost no specs. It would play on this card perfectly. Yeah, you're going to want to play Solitaire and <laughs> things like that, but this could do some encoding uh, options. I mean, th it doesn't really require a lot, but at least they put that in there. You're not going to be very happy with your new PC that you have pre-built and it has one of these cards for very long. You're going to outgrow it really quick. It's worse performance than AMD 5000 series integrated GPU. So discrete should be dominating in this realm, but it's not. The passive cooling, the low power consumption, definitely an LP line like you said. But there is good news, Wendy, because I am excited about Intel entering this market. And I want Intel to be successful here. I love the idea of having three competitors in this world. So while I have to call what it is, what, they, what they've released, exactly what it is, and tell people it's not that exciting, they do have some leaked benchmarks on the Intel DG2 that have hit certain sites. And the DG2 is basically performing somewhere between a GeForce RTX 3070 and GeForce RTX 3080, according to these leaked benchmarks, which would be quite impressive. And looking at some of the... I don't know if they're actual pictures of the DG2 or artist proof of the DG2, but it looks like it actually has a fan on it, which is getting closer to a real discrete graphics card. And it looks pretty big. And if they can squeeze that kind of performance out, which I think Intel's capable of, because number one, they're using TSMC as their fabricator, which is both a blessing and a curse because it's a blessing because TSMC puts out some of the greatest chips out there. Uh, for a lot of the companies, including AMD, but they also are one of the big bottlenecks for the supply chain. So how many of these we'll actually ever see in the market? Who knows with the silicon shortage out there? But that's some hope that I have that their gaming series of cards to come out will be something impressive. That's what we've been waiting for anyways, that it could compete in that lineup would be pretty awesome. That would be awesome. Fingers crossed that they actually get some out here pretty soon and we get some real numbers. Leaks are always great. I'm always interested to see what the leaks are because most of the time, depending on which website you're reading about the leaks on, they're pretty close to what you'll actually see or at least a good base. So I'm hoping they actually are competitive like it says they possibly are. Yeah, I think that Intel is one of those com those companies that has been around for so long. They just kind of gotten they just kind of gotten used to the the grind or whatever. And now with them pushing forward into working in the GPU space, they've been talking about making a GPU space uh, a GPU that's an Intel brand for at least I don't know five years or more. I mean, I think it's even a decade, but it's. It's been a long time, and obviously I don't remember the full exact amount of time frame, so I'm not that much of a hardware person. Uh, but I do think it's really great that they're doing it. And I also want to just really quick point out that the the negative aspects that we're talking about in terms of the naming of Intel is because they can do so much better. Like, they they they, they created right. Pentium. Like, that was such a good way. There were songs made about that. There was so much stuff they could have done that they are just now making these weird naming things and also the people who make their products or their packaging there i forgot what product they was but they're they, they have some teams that are good at the marketing because there was this one product they sold where it was a cpu and when you got it you would open it 
and when you took the you took it you opened the the lid of the box it would play the intel music like the jingle like that is so yeah. good like they can do good <laughs> They, they do have the capability, and that's really kind of the message I want to get out to Intel. I'm excited they're in this market. I get it that you're going to start small. They took some great engineers, including from Radeon, that used to work on the Radeon lineup to start this discrete graphics uh, lineup that they have here to start this architecture that they have. I think if you get a mobile GPU inside of a laptop here, like their Intel Iris X Max, you're going to get what most people would expect the laptop to perform technically a discrete mobile GPU, but you, it's 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 the laptop without the 2070 in it kind of experience. So I'm not so mad about that. I don't like that it's named Max. This first DG1 looks like, hey, let's put some money into our stockholders, get some quick cash because there's a GPU shortage. We could put this kind of really low end because nobody can get anything else card out that people can put in some pre-built systems and at least you have something to hold you over until the GPU supply chain frees up. But the DG2 is really where I'm expecting to see some impressive performance as this lineup increases. And hopefully they start showing through the naming conventions how excited they are about the product. Because I think in a lot of ways, the way you name something shows your own excitement for what you're releasing out there, like the Threadripper. They were excited yeah. to take that stage they were excited to show off what they had done, and they put a name that's fitting with that. You're not going to hit the stage and get that same type of excitement saying, I have a DG2. Yeah, an XE DG2 with L, with a XE HPG. No, no, you're not going to get the same effect as the Threadripper. Also, sorry, it has to be pronounced Threadripper. That's a, that's a requirement for the show. Now, there are... Uh, things about this that I you, you just mentioned that it maybe it's like a confidence thing. Maybe they don't have that much confidence in the product, so they may name it weird stuff like that. Because there was a you know back in the day they actually had they were had they were the dominant force, and when they came out with the core eye stuff, it was you know good. It had it had a decent name, and then now they kept adding stuff on top of those every single time, like the core two duo. That was a good name. It was redundant, but it was a good name. You know, like all of these different options. Uh, like now, it just seems like they're, they're, they're not very confident and it kind of shows, you know, in their marketing and all that. Real quick, before we wrap up, this DG1 releasing hit the headlines. A lot of people covering it, benchmarking it. It's obviously going in a gaming machine. From a pure branding perspective, do you feel like this is doing more damage to Intel's reputation releasing this than if they would have just waited for something like the DG2? Oh, this is supposed to be gaming? No, this it's not supposed to be gaming, but it's going into gaming systems, and that's part of the problem. I don't know what? if this is on the Intel side saying, hey, we've got these, you might as well add them into stuff. Or if it's just the company that's putting these together with them saying, hey, we just want to get stuff out that actually has graphics cards. Either way, especially as the Intel partner, I would be like, um, no, that's not what these are for. And we need to be really clear on the fact that these are not built for gaming. Yeah. Can you play Solitaire? Can you play some of these other games at really low settings? Absolutely. But Intel would be much better off 
and better for their long game if they said, do not put these in anything that you are calling a gaming PC. It, yeah, it, it sounds like this is going to backfire because if they're putting it, if, if companies are putting this in gaming PCs and people are expecting to be able to game and other than Minesweeper, then they're going to have a bad, they're going to have a problem. <laughs> and if that's the case, people are just going to say, oh, well, Intel's GPUs are terrible because that that's, if the first thing you put out is not is not worth using it in the way that people are pr- promoting it to be used, it's going to end badly, and they're going to have a massive backlash in terms of saying you should you don't even bother like Intel. You know they'll they'll make fun of the fact that you know AMD's been eating Intel's lunch for years, and then say like, well, they try to get in this other space, but they can't even win the CPU yet. So like, here's proof of that, and all that kind of stuff. Like, there's so much writing on this push for GPUs that it makes no sense to me that they would start with something like I understand low end hardware and you couldn't get the GPUs that are high end hardware. I because of the whole shortage. I get why they would take that play, but they should avoid the gaming parts like completely have a, like a stipulation in their contracts is do not put this in gaming cart your gaming machines because it's, it's going to end badly. This almost reminds me of the issue that was going on with AMD and they would release some super awesome cards, but they'd release them before the drivers and stuff were really ready to go and it put a bad taste in people's mouth for AMD cards. This just kind of has that writing on the wall for me with Intel. I think those are all good points. I felt the same way. I I understand Intel wanting to hit this market like Michael said, but there's so much writing on the reputation right now. If they had a flagship card and then released this, there would be no problem. But it's like a dealership, you know, Chevrolet having the Corvette. You've got to have that flagship. Maybe you're going to sell more Chevy Cruises because they're more, more people can afford them. But you've got to have that flagship car that shows off what you're capable of. And Intel basically is starting out with a very cheap card. And it's not going to bode well. If they would have just stuck with the Iris Maxes inside of laptops, again, I think the expectations for laptops are pretty low to begin with. So it wouldn't have made a ton of noise. But making anything discreet and this being your first offering, I think is where their mistake is. If they had the DG2 out already and then they want to release the DG1 as your low power, not meant for gaming, has some encoding and decoding advantages over lower end offerings that NVIDIA has it would be fine. And again, NVIDIA can get away with it because they have the top of the line flagship GPUs. This episode of Hardware Addicts is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is a password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager as well as additional authentications, such as master passwords and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because it is 100% open source. You can self-host it. There's security audits. And one of my favorite features is being able to share using Bitwarden. It was super easy. I love this feature. You should totally check it out. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. If you're like me, though, you're going to want us to help support this super awesome 
open source project and you'll want to get that premium edition starting at just $10 per year. Thank you, Bitwarden, for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. All right, Wendy, take us into the camera corner and tell us about extension tubes and macro lighting. Yes, we are staying within the macro world, and this is thanks to the community because you wanted to know, we want you wanted me to talk about extension tubes and how to light for macro images. What is an extension tube? It's exactly what it says it is. You attach it to your camera body and then you attach the lens to it and it actually extends the distance between your lens and the sensor itself on the camera. And this allows you to zoom in. It makes for not needing to have an actual macro lens, but getting some macro shots. This has some of the same downsides as using the reverse lens technique, where especially at the lower apertures or the settings where you're letting in more light, it can get really fuzzy around the outer edges of your image. And that's because it hasn't been designed in order to do those close-up, those tighter shots. And so the glass just isn't made for that. The more you go up, so if you decrease the amount of light, so that number, your f-stop is going up, then that kind of helps mitigate some of that. And that's because we're going to use another photography word there, your focal distance or that range in which stuff is in focus for your lens, then it kind of clears up some of those fuzziness around the edges. And this is another really great way to get some beautiful macro shots and not spend the extra money on the lens. You can also use this technique even if you have a dedicated macro lens because then you can zoom in that much more with it. So can you double up these extension tubes? Can I take two extension tubes and stack them together to get even closer to an image? I mean, what's the limit here? It really depends on the sensor you're using, the lens you're using, and how extreme you go. There's always going to be a limit to where it just doesn't work anymore. You can't extend it forever and be like, yay, I'm still greeting great pictures. You reach a point where there's a limit of no returns, and that really depends on A, the quality of the lens you have, and B, how far out you're there you're getting, and C, what sensor size you're using. So all of those play a factor. I can't give you a hard, here's the limits for each. That would take some testing of multiple cameras and multiple lenses and multiple different types of extension tubes, but it is a place it's worse than better. So you can stack them. I can take like a 12 millimeter lens and a 25 millimeter, I'm sorry, not lens, but extension tubes and put them on a 37 millimeter lens. I can mix and match and I can stack these things together. Yes, absolutely. There's also adapters that I've seen and I actually wanted one where the extension tube itself actually moves in almost accordion style so you can zoom in and out using it. I've seen them on eBay. I really, really want one. They're one of those things that have been in my wish list for a long time. But every time I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get one, I end up spending that money on something else. So maybe one of these days I'll have to get one and do some experimenting with it and see how far or close I can get not only my dedicated macro lenses, but some of my quote unquote normal lenses too. So how much money would getting a difference between getting something like an extension tube versus just buying the zoomed in macro lens that you want? How much does an extension tube cost you? Extension tubes can be right around 
8 to $10, maybe 12 There's really nothing to them. It is a metal tube that has a connector on the back to attach to the body and a connector on the front to attach to your lens. Like, that's it. They are extremely simple. That's very cool. And I'm looking at some images that you posted. Are any of these using the extension tubes or does this fall into the other thing you're going to talk to us about? This falls into the other category we're going to talk about. So the images that I've shared with you, and I will definitely be sharing them on the discourse form like I did for the past episode. But these two images come to talking about lighting for Mac photography. And one of our listeners brought up a really good fact that especially as your aperture gets tighter. So you're letting in less light, but you have more stuff in focus. You're going to need more light on that image or on that object in order to get a really good picture of it. So the first image I've shared with you is a picture of this cute little cat face spider. It's not cute, Wendy. And by the way, Wendy (laughs) responds after putting this picture up and says, This is what I like to make tea with. Hey, I thought you were talking about the second image I shared with you, which was of a dandelion. So don't go there. (laughs) This spider is disgusting looking. It's absolutely horrific. But I will say the photography on this horrific creature that should be burned with fire is quite fantastic. (laughs) So what I'm using here is my fantastic manual focus 55 millimeter Nikkor lens. It's set at f22. So that means in the range of this lens, I'm really letting in very little light compared to if it was opened all the way up. But this allows me to pretty much get the entire cute little spider in focus with one shot and no focus stacking. Uh, as I'm looking at this photo, um, you know, I haven't actually noticed. I, I didn't look at the spider photo yet. I just saw the dandelions. Like, oh, okay, scroll up. Oh, my goodness. Cute. What? Only Wendy uh, would think that's yeah. cute. That's, that's horrific. <laughs> Something of my nightmares. Yeah. It's like comes from aliens. I'd burn my house down if I saw it. What kind of spider? It's cat face spider? Yes, it's a cat face Cats have spider. cute faces. So if you were looking at this spider from the back, if you were looking at the back of his body, there's two little horns on the side that look like cat ears. And then the markings on the rest of him almost look like it's a cat face. So that's how they get their nickname of a cat face spider. If you told me this was found at the bottom of an ocean, I would believe you. It's that ugly. Well, you're looking at it so close that you can see the little hairs on his legs and on his body and these tiny little eyes. It gives you a detailed view of what this creature looks like, which is one of the fascinating things about macro photography. Now, when we're talking light, I'm letting in very little through the lens compared to what I could be. So I actually have a flash that I'm holding and putting where I want it to get the look that I want. So I'm holding my flash towards the front of this spider. So the back of him is going into shadow but you can see the highlight on the front legs. You can see the highlight in the eyes and you can see that beautiful orange color across part of its back. Where you see beauty, I see a warning sign that it's going to kill me. Did you you rate it? Did you spray rate on it afterwards or anything? No, I left him alone. 
There okay. was no killing right. of the spiders. As long as spiders no are not spiders aggressive towards me, then I do not smash spiders. If spiders are like, hey, I'm going to bite you, then that's when they die. This one is like, as long as you're leaving me alone. That, that one was yeah, when she, she, yeah, saw this, she saw this spider. She's like, oh, so adorable. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the, the flower because the flower actually is beautiful. It is cute. It is nice. And it doesn't look like it's going to attack me. You don't need to nightmares. kill it with fire. <laughs> Yes, this is a dandelion that was just on the grass in my yard, and I used pretty close to the same technique. Now, I'm letting in more light here than I was on the other one. I'm at an F8, so it means I'm stopped down just a little bit. My 55 millimeter lens, if it is all the way open, is an F3.5, so I'm letting in just a little bit less light. So you can see the flower is actually fading to the background but you can see the front of it pretty crisp. This one cool. I was handheld. So that's why I needed to have a faster shutter speed. So my shutter speed here is 100. On the other one, my shutter speed was 40. So it was definitely on a tripod so I could get it that crisp and clear. That's part of the difference between how much light I was letting in is because I was wanting to make sure, regardless of whether I had a flash or not, that it was going to be fast enough that I could get a nice crisp image even though I'm handheld. This one, the lighting is just a little bit different. So I'm also using an, an off-camera flash, one of those ones that you can pick up just about anywhere. Usually when you see them, they're mounted on top of the camera. So instead of having it mounted on top of the camera in either one of those cases, I have a trigger mounted on top of my camera and then I am physically holding the flash itself. Now this one, I had some modifiers on top of it. So I had a reflector and I will share a link to one of these, a picture to one of these in so you get a good idea of what this reflector looks like. Because usually when you think of a reflector, you think of the big white fabric pieces or something like that. This actually is a metal cone that is going over the flash itself. And over top of that, I had a grid. And this was a 10 degree grid. So as the light is leaving this attachment, it will only spread 10 degrees as it exits. You can get all different kinds, but this is a reflector with a grid. And so I'm really able to concentrate the light directly on the flower, which makes the grass behind it go really, really dark green and into the blacks. Very nice. It looks beautiful, unlike the spider. And one real quick question going back to the extension tubes. What if you took the extension tube and reversed your lens? That would definitely be more difficult because the further away you're getting with that lens, sometimes you're not able to focus at all. So that would kind of be depending on the lens that you have and the extension tube you have. It's another one of those. It might work and it might not just depending on what gear you have. I feel like that's your homework, Wendy, is to take a picture with extension tubes and a reverse lens, not because there's any purpose to it other than science. Okay, it'll be a picture of a spider, just so you know. Be prepared. <laughs> no, no, no more spiders. <laughs> science. Well, that's it. Our 39th episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. And if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the great content on the Destination Linux Network. Head 
to destinationlinux.network to check out all the great podcasts and YouTube partners available. There is so much there to fill your brains with. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next time for another Iris XEX Max DG1 episode of Hard Radix, where we use extension tubes to extend the length of these outros. Nice. <laughs>